We have been working through uh, the seven letters of Jesus in Revelation to uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor that he addressed in that uh, book. So we come to the last. We will have one more message on this to round, round them out and draw together some themes. But today we look at Laodicea, proverbially nasty Laodicea. Um, but I, I, there's much more than just writing them off as, don't be like this. There's so much more here. Have you ever considered what happens to the currency, the money, of a failed state, a failed country? This can be very graphically illustrated by the Confederate States of America in our American Civil War. That's the South, the South, the Confederate States. At the beginning of the conflict, around 1860, the Confederacy, the South, they, they got off to a roaring start. They were ready for this. They'd been kind of gearing up. They were prepared. They had better generals. They were better led. They had highly motivated troops, better organized. And along with that, they issued their own currency. Confederate dollars. Confederate dollars. And during the war, you could buy eggs, and butter, and nails, and wood. You could even buy a house with Confederate dollars. It was workable. A workable currency. For a while. For a while. By the end of the war, it was worthless. It was worthless because it had never been backed up by anything real. There wasn't gold behind each Confederate dollar. It wasn't, it wasn't backed up. And then with a failed authority, no, there was no, no authority that could say it had value. And optimism, maybe we could turn this around. Optimism can only take you so far. If you can't, use it. So what once had been used to buy food literally became kindling for fire. They burned the money because that was all it was good for. The illusion had been removed. It was revealed to be worthless. It turns out it always was worthless. It was revealed to be so. It was revealed as counterfeit. Now, in a few cases, you could imagine there was some wise person that looked at how things were going early on in the midst of that delusional optimism at the beginning and said, just hold on to those old dollars. Even if you have to bury them, or just hold on to that because something's not quite right about this. What a gift that would have been, right? If you, that had been your friend that advised you, hold on to your union dollars. Well, Jesus communicates a much stronger version of this kind of warning to the church of Laodicea. A warning about value here in this last of the messages. That church in Laodicea was a gathering of people whose valuations had become way off. Their sense of identity had been so distorted that Jesus tells them they may cease to be a church. They may just cease to be. 
So like people using Confederate dollars, this church was apparently completely deluded, completely blind about value. Jesus cannot commend them for a single thing. This is the one letter where he has nothing good that he can say about them in their church life. Nothing good. Not even like Sardis, where he could say, a few names have not defiled their garments. So there's nothing he can commend them. But as we begin to look at this letter, I want to say clearly, note this, Jesus loves them. They have nothing to commend them, but he loves them. He loves this deluded church enough to send them a loud and clear message. There were other churches in Asia Minor. But he loved this people. That he wanted to warn them of how they were walking and where it was leading them. And he tells them the way back. He loves enough to rebuke. So as Jesus begins his words to Laodicea, we're we're in chapter 3. We're looking at verse 14. He stresses his own character. He says the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler or fountain or even headwater of the creation of God. The idea is from whom creation comes, from whom creation flows. You see here, he's saying, my character, the character of God is consistency, is completeness, is unwavering in who he is and what he does. So the amen, that's the so be it. What he says is truly declared. Anything and everything he says comes with that guarantee. It will be. He is the Amen. What he says will be. And in the same way, he's the faithful and the true witness. There's nothing to be doubted in what he says. There's nothing that can be doubted. He is such a witness that what he says is the truth. His words are so sure. They're so solid that if he says something, it can be considered as already accomplished. If God has said this is going to be, it can just be received as accomplished. He's the faithful and true witness. And it's from that character, that that being, that all creation flows. It's through this word that all things were made. And his character was to fill the design. So the design of the world, he's just in introducing himself, he's saying, the design of my creation was to reflect my character, to be true, to be trustworthy, to be consistent. And so for his reclaimed people, we, we are included in that. That church in Laodicea, included in that, his reclaimed people, to participate in God's renewal, to be open to his renewal is, as it's happening in you, is to let that character of Jesus, 
truth, God-oriented reliability, single-mindedness, trustworthiness, is to let that work its way in you. Work its way in reshaping you. So he's introducing himself. He's saying, I designed my world to be like me. I'm renewing it. It doesn't yet look all like me, but it will. And it's starting with you, church. You, my people, I'm renewing you to be like that. That faithful, single-minded character of Jesus. It's important to get right here at the outset. If we're going to understand his rebuke to Laodicea, if we're going to catch what is wrong here, in short, they are not like him. They don't have that character. They're the opposite, in fact. He says in verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. You can't fool the God who sees all the way down. You can't fool him. He sees all the way into our character. And this church, Laodicea, is not reflecting that essential being and character of their savior, their ruler, their source of life itself. So what is going on with them? What is going on? Why are they not hot? Why are they not cold? We read between the lines, though sometimes he's pretty explicit, of all the cities that received letters, this was the most prosperous richest. It was at a crossroads of the two major Roman roads, one leading east-west, one north-south. There it was, kind of in the middle of Asia Minor, and at such a strategic position, certain industries developed, the industry of currency exchange and money lending. As merchants are going, they might run out of money there, uh, along the way, or they might be entering a new province because it's right on the border of a province. Good place for banking. So uh, a financial industry, kind of like Hong Kong used to be, developed there. And crossroads towns like, like that, like Hong Kong, they also tend to be places where there's a lot of knowledge exchange, knowledge being shared from the various poles to which these roads lead north, south, east, west, and they had developed a textile industry that, pardon the pun, wove together various, um, various insights in clothing and fashion, but also methodology. So Laodicea was, they were on the cutting edge of clothes making, blanket making, textiles. And then lastly, they had done the same thing with medical knowledge, medicinal knowledge. They gathered medicinal plants and herbs from the east and the west, and they seemed to have a knack for combining them in useful ways. And all of this brought prosperity. It brought prosperity. And along with prosperity, it brought a sense of self-reliance and independence. For example... The city suffered a major earthquake in around 60 AD. So a couple decades before this letter is written, major earthquake, 
The Roman uh, imperial officials offered to send money, offered to send labor to help them rebuild, and the officials of Laodicea said, no thank you, we got this. We don't need you. We don't need anything. We, we can depend on ourselves. We can handle this. Well, that mentality, so you have prosperity, independence, self-reliance, that mentality had apparently seeped into the people of Jesus. How does it not? That you're surrounded by a mentality, and it had disastrous effect. How difficult it is, Jesus had said, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Christians of Laodicea were pretty comfortable. They were comfortable. In a crossroads city also, they didn't stand out like Christians in other communities. We, you know, these other letters there, Philadelphia or Smyrna or Thyatira, the Christians stood out. There was kind of a, a, an ethnic um, single, oh, particularly last week we talked about Philadelphia. It, it's just a thoroughly Greek city. The Christians stood out. Not so here. This is a crossroads city. There's lots of ethnicities here. They didn't have the kind of life or death pressure to conform. They didn't have the kind of life or death pressure Life or death pressure to conform. And here's the irony. So they did conform. They didn't have this terrible pressure. Suffer if you don't conform. And so they just conformed. What? That makes no sense. You're right, it doesn't. And so Jesus says in verse 15 and 16, would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, tepid, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, literally vomit you out of my mouth. Well, like, like pillars in Philadelphia that we looked at last week, water was a powerful object lesson for Laodiceans. Philadelphia had pillars everywhere. Laodicea had a water problem. And everybody knew about their water problem. Down at Colossae, sort of down the hill a little bit, Colossae had a nice spring-fed, ice-cold mountain stream that provided water. Five miles over at Hierapolis, they had hot springs, medicinal hot springs. But the river that ran through Laodicea um, was shallow, was muddy, and was kind of like toilet water. So what they did is they, they had built an aqueduct to bring water from the hot springs five miles over. The ice-cold springs were downhill, so you can't, can't do that. Hot springs were up a little bit, so they could bring them down. By the time it got to Laodicea, Yes, you guessed it, it tepid, it tepid. But it retained that medicinal flavor. So their water, a bit like tepid coffee, you know, you just don't want to drink it. Everyone was aware of this issue in the city. It's kind of like the stink of our sugar beet factory. 
you're just aware of it, you can't get... And so it was this constant reminder in Laodicean life. And Jesus, in his kindness, gives them such a reminder that we, this letter will come to mind. And he tells his church, you are noncommittal. Opposite to his character, in his purity, his single-mindedness, his perfect truth, they have something of that. But they also have a whole lot of their cultural mentality mixed in. They've conformed to the pattern of their society. They've conformed because it's comfortable, because it brings temporary ease and pleasure. The comparison with much of today's American or just Western Christianity is hard to ignore, isn't it? You've thought about it even as I've been talking. In all the ways that we can, we seem to look for how far we can incorporate wealth, how far we can incorporate a commitment to personal comfort into our lives. We're looking for the boundary. How much can I consume without it just wrecking my conscience as a Christian? Along with almost completely ignoring the spiritual realm, just something else we do, this commitment to comfort is what most immediately draws the attention of non-Western Christians when they first encounter us. It's glaring. Maintaining comfort isn't just material, it's also social. So like Laodicea, we often compromise simple truth, honesty, and then we'll excuse ourselves for it as long as we can keep fitting in, looking acceptable in the eyes of people whose approval we care about, people whose opinion we value. So in some settings, churchly settings, we'll try to keep churchly approval by following churchy norms and talking churchy talk. And then in other settings, we'll try to keep worldly approval by following worldly norms. Because we don't want to alienate those people. We want their approval. We want, we want them to like us. In neither case are we demonstrating the character of Jesus. In neither case are we being consistent. Now this brings to us the charge of hypocrisy frequently thrown, but it's a thorough hypocrisy. It's lacking truth and consistency towards everyone, everyone we know. Hot is honest commitment, honest commitment. Cold is honest commitment. Mixing them is confusing and distasteful to everyone. Now, as I said at the beginning, Jesus loves this Laodicean church. He loves them enough to tell them the truth to save them. Verses 18 and 19, I say to you, for, no, he says, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you 
to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. When a people like Laodicea has accepted the lie of self-sufficiency. That I'm rich, that I've prospered, that I need nothing, that I don't need help, that I don't need the power of God. I've got it all. The solution to that lie is truth. It's the solution to every lie. It's truth. Every lie is destroyed and conquered by truth. And the truth in Laodicea is a church in spiritual poverty. On the surface, they're comfortable. On the surface, they're confident. But the truth is, Jesus tells them, the words of the amen, the indisputable, the truth is they are wretched. They're pitiable. They're poor. They're blind. They're naked. So Jesus says, essentially, reorient to me. Come to me and buy spiritual gold. You've got plenty of gold. Come to me and buy spiritual gold that's refined and that will last forever. Come to me for white garments, the spiritual garments of the eternal kingdom that cannot wear out and will always be bright and clean. He says, let me clothe you. Your closet's full. Let me clothe you. Whatever shame you have, whatever you're trying to cover up uh, with your performance, or whatever you're trying to ignore with your wealth and with accumulation, whatever shame you're trying to deal with in that way, my own righteousness, he says, will cover you. Let me clothe you. And let me heal your spiritual vision. You think that you see the world clearly. You think that your wealth demonstrates your wisdom. Wow, this is such a Western problem. So that you think you can have pity on those poor people who don't have what you have. Because if they were more righteous, then they would be blessed like us. Jesus says, let me heal your blindness and your distorted spiritual sight. <clears throat> As I explained, Laodicean society, they were known for strength in all those areas. They had gold, they had clothes, fine clothes, they had medicines. And so Jesus points to each area in which the Christians have compromised and might think that they're self-sufficient. And in each area of outward competence, he says you have spiritual poverty. In fact, by implication, what they have given to become competent in these areas has impoverished them. The devotion, the love, the affections of their hearts that they've given to wealth, that they've given to clothes, that they've given to whatever areas brought them competence, the affections they've given has made them impoverished. And so the amen, 
the faithful and true speaker. He's tearing back the veil in order to tell the truth about what's happening in them. It's the same word that he spoke through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55. Same God, same word. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. And then he interprets for them. Incline your ear to me and come to me here that your soul may live. This is rich food here and your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's good to see that there's nothing pleasing to the Lord about his beloved children spending themselves, pouring themselves out, their lives and their energies and their time on what's only going to disappoint them. He doesn't want that for his people. He doesn't want us to, to have what will make us miserable in the long run. The Lord doesn't want to see his people trading their infinite spiritual gifts for what's going to show itself to be counterfeit and worthless, he doesn't want us to find we are holding confederate dollars in the end. Because you can spend those confederate dollars for a while, but they can't buy what will last. Instead, the Lord says, I give. I give. What will last forever, I give. Let me feed you. Let me clothe you. So come to me and receive for your souls what can never be taken away. To Laodicea, he says, uh, he says, buy from me. But Jesus implies that the currency, the currency by which they will buy these things, is an exchange. They're to bring the worthless stuff. What, a, what an exchange. Bring your worthless stuff and buy from me eternal stuff. What's going to last forever? Give me your empty, vain plans. Give me your intentions to get richer and more comfortable. Give me the drives of empowering yourself. Give me your scheme to grow your influence. Give me that, and I will give you truth. I'll give you truth. I'll give you myself. What an exchange. Give me all your Confederate dollars and I will give you myself. This is love. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I give you repentance. He tells the truth of healing to those he loves. And he loves us. He loves us. Because he's telling us. 
It's painful work. But this painful work of prying our our desperate hands off of destructive things. He does that because he loves us. And that love, it's finally, as we were wrapping up this letter, it's finally powerfully expressed in his readiness to celebrate covenant with us. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. We'll eat together. Now, throughout the Bible, when people eat with God, it's part of establishing a covenant. The, the clearest and kind of strangest is at Mount Sinai. He's just given them the law. He speaks truth to them. And he's commanded the 70 elders up to the top of the mountain. He speaks truth. And then they have a meal up on the top of Mount Sinai. The elders of Israel eat, with, eat in the presence of God. And it's establishing, it's called a covenant meal. It's establishing the peace that he has set out for them in this truth. The covenant meal is the meal of peace and restored fellowship. And Jesus says, behold, I'm ready for that meal. You? I'm ready for it. I'm always ready for it. I'm always, I'm knocking, I'm at your door. Whatever you've done, however you have turned yourself to what's destructive, however you've compromised, I have fixed my love on you. And I'm visiting. So whenever you hear me, if your spiritual ears suddenly Catch. They suddenly become alert that I'm here. Then open up. Talk to me. To open the door to the Lord is to talk to him and to let him speak his truth with you. You talk to him. He speaks truth. That's a meal of fellowship. He says, like, like a meal of fellowship, I'll speak truth in you that will heal you. But you, have to talk, you have to open the door and talk to me. This is what we celebrate in our communion each week. Jesus is declaring truth. He's declaring truth in our gathering. We sing truth. We pray truth. We hear truth through the scripture. I hope you hear truth through the teaching. There's truth in the liturgy. His spirit knocks. And so as we let his truth work in us, we have fellowship with him. This gathering of believers is a fellowship of the truth. God speaking. And then we eat. We've been eating the truth spiritually. And so we have a covenant meal together. We have a visible reminder that as true as it is that we take bread, it's as real as it is that we take bread and we press it with our teeth and we swallow it and it goes into our stomachs. It is that true that truth declared works in our souls. As our bodies need nourishment, our souls need truth. His spiritual work is as true as bread in the stomach. And so he concludes in verse 21. We overcome. 
as he renews us. As we let him renew us. By the power of God, Jesus overcame death. By the same power, he defeats death in us. By his power, we overcome. It's his power. It's his power. And as the word says then, I have to also say, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come and buy without money, without price. He gives. He gives himself. Unrestricted, he gives himself. Open the door. Father, thank you for your faithful love towards your people. Chiefly exhibited in your willingness to come among us in Jesus Christ to suffer for us, to defeat death for us, that we might live with you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts, that we wouldn't keep back parts of ourselves from you and be lukewarm. Lord, would you work in us that we might give all of who we are to you? And we know we need your help for that. So come and heal, we pray. In Jesus' name.